ordered one of these 19-inch ones. We'd be able to put it up in the front, and it'll come up far enough. Uh, should be here one of these days. All right, tonight we're still in the parable of the marriage feast. It's found in Matthew 22. Turn over there. We'll read the parable. There are some amazing things in this parable. First of all, the king invites people to come to the marriage supper, and they don't want to come. Boy, that's amazing. That's amazing. Chapter 22, verse 1, Then Jesus, And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables, and said, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a certain king which made a marriage for his son. And sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And a remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then saith he unto his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. And so those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all, as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guest, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Let's bow our heads. Father, again we've read this portion. We ask you to continue to bless it to our hearts. Teach us about ourselves. Teach us about our great God. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, Wayne, in order to catch up, I think this is the fourth week we're on this parable at night, so you have it on your tapes. It's the night tapes, and uh, they've been very, very interesting. So tonight, we're going to talk about who is this son a certain king which made a marriage for his son. On previous messages, we told you that most sons go out, look for their own girlfriend, bring the girl home to dad and say, Dad, look who I have found, who I'm in love with. I want you to meet her. It's not like that in this parable. The certain king made a marriage for his son. He planned it. He went out and even planned the bride for his son. So we're going to talk about tonight who is this son. Well, he's a king for one thing. Turn to Jeremiah 10. Look at verses 6 and 7. 
Jeremiah 10, verses 6 and 7. For as much as there is none like unto thee, O Lord, thou art great, and thy name is great in might, who would not fear thee, O King of nations? For to thee doth it appertain, for as much as among all the wise men of the nations and all their kingdoms, there is none like unto thee. That's this son who's having a marriage supper made for him. More than that, Revelation 19.16 says he's King of kings and Lord of lords. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. He is God, the Son of God, the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of his person. Turn to Hebrews 1.3. I will show you that we are image worshipers. We worship the express image of God. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. What's he doing there? Well, he's making intercession. He is now our mediator. He's our advocate. How did he purge our sin? By fire? Like purgatory? No. Fire never purges sin. Sin can only be purged with blood. And that has to be spotless, sinless blood. And only our Lord Jesus Christ had that kind of blood. That's how he purged our sins by giving his life and shedding his blood. And then the nations on earth to this king are as nothing to him. All the nations. Turn to Isaiah 40, verse 17 and 22. Isaiah 40, 17 and 22. All nations before him are as nothing. And they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. Verse 22. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. He loses us. Our reason can't keep up with that. We can't keep up with the millions and millions and millions of light years out there that he has spread out like a tent. We'll know one day. We'll see one day. And it may take forever to learn, but we got forever to do it in. Those that come to the Lord Jesus Christ have so much to look forward to. If only the majority of people could realize anything about salvation. But that's why they're called unbelievers, because they don't believe it. When we consider him in his personal excellencies, 
or in the glory of his offices, there is none like unto him in heaven nor earth. He has the preeminence over all creatures, angels, and men. Yes, over the whole creation. All must worship him or give divine adoration to him or they are in trouble. Turn to Philippians 2. Look at verses 9 through 11. Philippians 2. You see, this is going to happen. It hasn't happened yet. No, not everybody. It's going to happen. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. What's under the earth? That's where hell is. Hell is in the center of the earth. They are going to give adoration and worship to the Lord Jesus Christ, even though it will be at Judgment Day. That every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, no matter where they are. Things in heaven, those already souls up there now waiting. Us on earth are going to praise the Lord Jesus Christ. And if people die without praising the Lord Jesus Christ, they're certainly going to do it when they come to judgment. Nobody's getting out of it. That's how highly God has exalted his son. Now, when Christ was born, the Father said, let all the angels of God worship him. Did you find that in Matthew? No, you didn't. But try Hebrews 1.6. I'll show you there. Hebrews 1.6. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, let all the angels of God worship him. That'd be a good Christmas message. Take that from over there in Hebrews. The glory of Christ's majesty cannot be conceived, much less expressed by any in heaven and earth. Yet that is what Christ has in store for every believer, to see his glory. Turn to uh, John 17, look at verse 24. John 17, 24. Wayne, one time we spent... One year in John 17. And all these verses are very precious to us and very familiar. But verse 24 is, seems to be the finality of our joy. When the Lord says, Father, I will that they also... Uh-oh, here's election again. Whom thou hast given me. Be with me where I am that they may behold my glory. That is, that's it. That's as high as you can go. To behold the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. He's talking back again about the church where he, they were given to him before the foundation of the world. 
That's the love. That was a love gift. The church is a love gift. Can you believe such a thing? People like you and I, a love gift to the Lord Jesus Christ? Stagger the imagination. You can't do it. You've got to believe it. It's so wonderful to believe it, to be a believer, to know that God the Father loves you because the Lord Jesus Christ died for you. There'd be no love of the majesty on high for any mortal being apart from the Lord Jesus Christ being their substitute. It's the only way it can be. Our God is satisfied with Christ. And Christ is the one that paid our sin debt. Of course, that gets you forgiveness of sins. But how do you get eternal life? You get eternal life by keeping the law perfectly. And of course, our Lord Jesus Christ did that. And that's imputed to us. Eternal life is given to us because our Lord's righteousness by keeping the law is imputed to us. How much more can we receive? Why aren't our hearts rejoicing and so thankful to the Lord Jesus Christ every moment of the day? It's because our hearts are deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. They're not inclined to spiritual things. And if you have any spiritual moments during the day, thank the Lord for it. Because He would have given it to you. Now you see why it has got to be the sinner's chief interest in life is to know Christ. He not only has taken possession of His kingdom above, but He's soon to take possession of His kingdom below. I know a lot of folks don't believe that. Even a lot of fundamental folks don't believe the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back to rule on earth, but he is. Turn to Psalm 72. Look at verses 8, 9, and 11. Psalm 72, 8, 9, and 11. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea. And from the river unto the ends of the earth. And they that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him, and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isle shall bring presents to kings of Sheba, and, and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. You see, that looks like a verse just stuck in the Bible to take up space, but it's not. When the Bible makes a statement like that, it's going to come to pass whether everything is against it or not. When it says that all kings shall bow fall down before him and all nations shall serve him, they will when our Lord Jesus Christ comes back to reign in the millennium. What happens after the millennium? It goes out into eternity. Our Lord still reigns. But man is going to know that the Lord Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, how about the attendance of this son who is having a 
wedding feast prepared for him? Who are his friends? Well, there's 10,000 times 10,000s of glorious angels to minister unto him. Look at Revelation 5.11, and there's your figures. Revelation 5.11, And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts, and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands. There's nobody in this audience tonight except maybe Melinda that could figure that out because she's taking higher math. But that's a lot of angels. <laughs> Compare that to any earthly monarch and their following. Even Saddam Hussein, whom he has numbers into the thousands of his devout followers, our Lord Jesus Christ has the glorious angels thousands times ten thousands and thousands of thousands. I didn't know there was that many angels. That's an awful lot of angels. And what do they do? Are they doing anything now? Well, you know, they're supposed to be ministering spirits to God's elect. They watch over God's people. Even before they're even regenerated. In the days of their craziness. In the days of their utter sinful ignorance of spiritual things. Those angels guard God's people. Want to see that? Turn to the first chapter of the Hebrews. First chapter of Hebrews, verse 14. Last verse in the first chapter. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Do you know it? Do you ever feel one? Do you ever see one? Nope. You don't know they exist apart from the scriptures. Now, every one of us here can look back into many little events in life and know that we were divinely protected or spared. I know of instances in my life, and I'm sure you do too, where God has spared you to bring you to the hour when he would quicken you, convict you, and save your soul. Now, Christ is so sufficient in himself that it's an amazing wonder that he even created mankind. He can't gain anything from us. He doesn't stand in need of us. And yet he proposes such a great, sweet, gracious offer. And this shows amazing condensation. I mean condensation, not condensation. And why? It's for the good of poor sinners. Consider the sovereignty of Christ, this Son. He could have annihilated mankind as soon as they sinned. 
But what he do, he promised a redeemer. And when the whole world sinned, he brought a flood. And yet he saved eight for another start. He could have displayed his grace and favor to all the angels and not to fallen mankind. They're better made. They're more like him. They're pure spirits. And why should God be pleased to display mercy instead of justice upon mankind? He's glorified in his justice as well as he is in mercy. When the only way that justice could be satisfied and mercy brought into existence was by the letting out of the precious blood of his own son. Or that he must die if we are to be spared. That's amazing too. 1 Peter 3.18 First Peter 3.18, that's the price of redemption. Now, First Peter 3.18 is a different scripture. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. What I get out of that verse, which is kind of amazing to me, is that if anybody claims to be saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, they're admitting that they were unjust. See, that's who he died for. The just for the unjust. If you've never seen yourself as unjust, you've never been saved. Which speaks the same thing as saying if you've never been lost, you've never been found. If you've never been guilty, you've never been pardoned. You see, that's the opposites run together. Now, why does God offer his love to us in America? Well, the pagan world never gets to hear of Christ. They know nothing of his death, nor of the gospel. And they're not invited to the marriage feast. Getting closer to home, why does he open some hearts and cause us to listen in hunger and thirst after righteousness? And sitting in the same assembly, under the same external preaching of the word, are those who remain in the blindness of their minds. That's God's choosing. Turn to Romans 9.18. Romans 9.18. Therefore, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Now, what has man got to do with that? Not a thing. When God sets out to save a sinner, he saves them. And those that have not been given to the Lord Jesus Christ will not be saved. 
There are no additions to the church. There are no deletions. The Lord Jesus Christ died for a specific people. And they all will come to him. And that means they'll all take the low place in life. They'll come as a lost sinner. That's one thing all of God's people have in common. Now, they could come from a rich family. They could come from a poor family. They could come from a famous family. They could come from a, a colored family, a white family, a Chinese family. All those things would be different. But when they come, they all become a guilty, lost, hell-deserving sinner that cries for mercy. No matter what the language is, they're going to beg God for mercy, and that's the kind he saves. That wonderful description over there in Luke of that publican praying in the temple, he didn't have no great and glorious prayer. All he said is, God be merciful to me, the sinner. He didn't have anything else to say. And our Lord Jesus Christ says, and that man went down to his house justified. Boy, that's the, that, that's the fella in the scriptures I'd trade places with any day. That's my favorite character right there. Because our Lord said he was justified. And that's all that counts. Get to Christ. Don't worry about anything else. Get yourself justified. It greatly concerns sinners to accept of this offer to come to the wedding feast, considering the unworthiness of those that Christ commends his love to. Who are they? The men, women, children of the lost Adam. Not angels, but mankind. Turn to Job 7. Look at verse 17 and 18. Job, just before Psalms. Job 7. Verse 17 and 18. What is man that thou shouldest magnify him? And that thou shouldest set thine heart upon him? Good question, Job. And that thou shouldest visit him every morning and try him every moment? You see, man is a worm, a base and vile creature, Bread out of con corruption. Psalm 51 5. Psalm 51 5. When I say Psalm 51, you know David's crying. He says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, David's mother was no bad character. She was no worse than any other woman on the face of the earth. She's probably a very wonderful woman. David's talking depraved nature. David's talking Adam's nature. What we have inherited from Adam. You can't get away from it. No matter how sweet your mother is or your grandmother. The scripture applies to them. Their heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. 
That's the true picture of the normal, natural human being. And when God saves an individual, he doesn't take that heart away. He gives you a new one. But the old man stays. The old nature's still there. It'll drag you down at every moment it can. That's why old Paul in the seventh chapter of Romans had to say, Oh, wretched man that I was. Uh-uh, no, he don't say that. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death. Well, we're all born just as low as can be, and so much so as to be called in the Scriptures children of wrath. That's what you and I are called. Look at Ephesians 2.3. Ephesians 2.3. Paul's talking to saints, beautiful saints. He addressed the, the, the book of Ephesians 1, chapter 1, 1. He says, to the saints which are at Ephesus. And now when he's speaking to them in chapter 2, verse 3, it says, among whom also we all, all of us saints, all of you saints, had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh and of the mind and were by nature the children of wrath. That's our nature. Even as others. But you know, something happens. See, God's election steps in here. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, whereth he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, when we were children of wrath, hath quickened us together with Christ. For by grace are you saved. We're by nature the children of wrath. Not children of wrath, but by nature. Because... All unbelievers remain children of wrath, and God's wrath abides upon their head. If you want to see that, that's John 3.36. John 3.36, same chapter that's got, for God so loved the world in it. Lots of good teaching here in John, third chapter John. But look at the last verse in third chapter John. For he that believeth, on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but what? But the wrath of God abideth on him. It don't leave them. It's there when they're born. It's there when they die. Why? Because they don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. See, believing is so important. Now, our father Adam left us beggars. Well, that's not all. He left us sinners. Man is a sinner, a rebel, a cursed traitor to this blessed prince. And shall a king that we have conspired against, contemned in our hearts and consulted with the devil to dethrone, to murder and tread underfoot, should he come to woo us? Has he fallen in love with us? Or does the offended sovereign stoop to offending criminals? That's us, a criminal. Need a pardon. Scripture speaks of salvation as being a pardon. Criminals need a pardon. Does the majesty of heaven condescend to marry a slave of sin and Satan? Shall such that hate him be beloved by him? 
Shall condemned rebels not only entreated to accept of a pardon, but also to marry the prince? They don't even think about it. They don't even give it their best interest. And this is not only inequality, but it's insanity for people not to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now compare. He is a king of kings, and they rebels and traitors. He's a ruler of heaven and earth. They are beggars. He's from heaven, heavenly. They are from earth, earthly. He's the highest sovereign. We are the lowest peasants. He's the darling of heaven. We are subjects of hell. He in his nature pure, holy, undefiled. We in our nature impure, filthy, polluted. Yet, there's a marriage invitation to sinners. The Son of God has made was made flesh that he might be a true and fit bridegroom for his church. Does the Bible talk about that? We'll take a look at Ephesians 5, verse 25 and 26. Ephesians 5, 25 and 26. We always use this during a wedding ceremony. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Consider what he has suffered and undergone, that he might have his gracious design of love accomplished, born in a stable, and laid in a manger. He wasn't born in a manger. He was born on a dirty stable floor, and then laid in a manger. You know, if the inn was full, so was the stable. They had to push some animals aside, get them out, crowd them in together somewhere in order to have room for our Lord to be born. And shortly after the birth, Herod hears the news and plans to kill him. Now, the whole of his life is attended with sorrow and affliction. Look at Isaiah 53, 7. Isaiah 53, 7 is just an exact picture of what happened to our Lord Jesus Christ as if he was there. That's how true prophecy is. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. When he talked to his own people, the Jews, he was called a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. They said he had a devil and was mad, and that he cast out devils by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. Can you imagine that type of talk 
to the Creator. These people were insane. Look at Luke 11.15. Luke 11.15. But some of them said, He casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. And others tempting him sought of him a sign from heaven. And here he's been healing people, feeding thousands, raising the dead. And there's so many things that he did in those thousand days that his ministry was upon earth. A thousand plus days. We only have a few instances of the marvelous works of our Lord. And they asked for a sign. Then he was betrayed by one of his chosen disciples. And in the garden, our sin was so heavy upon him that he sweat great drops of blood. His death was one of torture, all terrible extreme pain. And he died in the place of all those that the Father gave him. See, I love that part. Look at John 6.37. If you can make it out to be anything else, great. But I don't think you can. It means that the Father gave him a people, and he said, they're going to come. John 6, 37, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. See, there it tells you that the Father gave him a people. But if you would like to see it in another place, turn to John 17, 2. John 17, 2. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Those are the only ones that get eternal life. Come on, read the script, read the words. Simple sixth grade English that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him, and not another one extra. That's the only ones. There was no blood of our Lord Jesus Christ shed in vain. The religionists today out there want one to say, Christ died for everybody, and so if they got to accept, no, no, he didn't die for everybody. Not one drop of his blood was shed in vain. It was all shed for people that Christ was going to die for. All those given to him. It's a matter of fact. It's a open and shut case. Those that God the Father chose back in eternity for the Lord Jesus Christ to die for are the only ones that are going to get saved. And that doesn't make them a privileged people in this world that from they get the good jobs and God favors them with uh, new cars and fine homes and lots of money. Uh-uh. No, no. The favor they have is to be brought down by God's Holy Spirit as lost, hell-deserving sinners. And they know it. That's something they all have in common. They all come down. That's what it means by being elect. See? 
That means you come to the Lord Jesus Christ as your only hope, your only way. That's salvation. is isn't joining the church, getting baptized, reading your Bible through a couple times a year. Nothing. Nothing you can do can earn you salvation. But when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ as a lost sinner, you're on track. Then you're on track. You cry, he answers. That's how simple salvation is. But you see, people don't want to be a lost sinner. They don't want to admit that they are guilty. They don't want to admit that they deserve to go to hell. If they don't, that's where they're going. In his holy life, Peter said that he did no sin. He wrought out a wedding garment for us, and that garment is a perfect righteousness. And by his death he bore our sins and the curse of the law and all the wrath due to us because of our sin, and so saved us from hell and eternal vengeance. And shall any after this refuse to come to the wedding or to accept of his love and to be married to so dear a Savior? And yet in our parable, it says they refuse to come. Refuse to come to the marriage feast that God had provided so perfectly for. The oxen and the fatlings were killed and prepared. Just come to the wedding feast. And they all made excuse. I'm busy. I married a wife. I've got oxen to try. I've got ground to plow. Please have me excused. They're insane. Aren't you glad the Lord Jesus Christ has opened your understanding to know that the most important thing is to get to the Lord Jesus Christ, get to know Him as your substitute, Savior, and Redeemer. That's all we're going to have tonight. We've listened well. We'll continue on in our parable next Sunday night. The Lord is blessing in this. I love these scriptures. Let's bow our heads. Father, I want to thank you tonight for thy great mercy and goodness and giving us such a wonderful gospel to talk about. Such a wonderful God, such a wonderful Savior to talk to people about, to witness for Him. Such a small crowd to witness to. I wish there were thousands here that could hear about our Lord Jesus Christ. But we're satisfied. Oh, thank you, Lord, for Thy grace to us as individuals, for Thy grace to us as a small congregation. Please hurry, Lord Jesus. Save these that need to be saved. Save that last one in this dispensation and come back. Come back quickly. We pray in thy precious name. Amen.
they're all dismissed. 